All right, so rather than putting all those words back up on the board, I just decided today to create a worksheet for all the Old Testament words. And for those of you just jumping in or, or haven't been here in some time, this is the majority of all the Old Testament language that God uses to describe our sin. And so there's a lot of illustrative language in here to help us better grasp what it means when we sin against God. And hopefully, you know, we'll move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, Lord willing, next week, if we have a chance to meet next week. We're in the middle of summer, right? But if we meet next week, we'll be in the Greek. So this is all Hebrew. And you have to give these things some thought. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the majority of these words for you. I don't think that's important. But it is important that you understand the nuances and the illustrations and learn to apply them to your life so you can understand that sin in our personal lives is a very big deal. And the way that we become so flippant and careless and just like the world always should stir repentance in our heart because we're not supposed to be that way. And frankly, the more time that you spend studying this language, really, the more that you should find yourself on your knees. Because you realize the things that offend you, and, and we can flip this, and I'll try to flip some of these, and see if somebody did this to you, how you would be. You need to understand that our sin does those same things against the Lord. Okay? And the worst thing is mentioned in here. We'll get to the word meaning marital unfaithfulness. And that's one of the largest words that you're going to find in the Old Testament language that appoints to our rebellion against God. He sees that as marital unfaithfulness. So you can imagine if I flip that one on its head and put that one in your lap, no one would he ever even want to walk through that, the pain, the agony, all associated with that. Well, God says, well, when you rebel against me and turn aside from what I've taught you, it's the same thing. It's marital or covenantal unfaithfulness, okay? So there's a lot of language in here that points or helps us understand our sin. So we started, I don't know how many weeks ago now, with the root word of pretty much every Old Testament nuance towards sin, and that's to miss the mark. And I've got the non-moral, meaning it has nothing to do with sin, word usage, and then I've got a moral word usage in several of these words. Uh, the non-moral is Judges 20. This is the word hata, which means to miss the mark. It was used from marksmen shooting a bow and an arrow. If they couldn't hit the bullseye, they missed. And so God says, in the, that line of thinking... When you draw upon my commands and try to hit the mark, you can't hit it. You miss it. And so we automatically begin to see that the moral requirements of God are beyond our ability to even hit the mark. Okay? Which should help us understand our need for God to do something because we can't hit the mark. Okay? Now, obviously, that one's the least offensive to miss the mark. But that's pretty much the root of the largest portion of words in the Old Testament that speaks about sin. But God uses an illustration, again, to help us understand. We use illustrations all the time in our Sand Mountain context, right? That dog won't hunt. We can apply that to a number of situations, and everybody will know exactly what you're talking about. And so in the same manner, God uses language to help us understand. No, when it comes to my righteousness, which we'll be talking about on Sunday morning in Romans 1, 17, in regard to my righteousness, you can't hit the mark. 
because it is the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness of men. And so you can't strike the bullseye. Okay. The second one, uh, taha, it means to wonder about. Again, non-moral. Uh, another illustration, Abraham rose up in Genesis 21. I'm on the first page. Rose up early in the morning, took bread, skin of water, gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, gave her the boy and sent her away. Hagar departed and wondered about the wilderness of Beersheba. So she's walking around, has no clue where to go. If you've ever read that Genesis 21, you know what I'm talking about. She doesn't have it. She doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't know what to do. She's literally wandering around in the desert, okay? And so that word has helped us to understand how we do God's law or God's command in regard to us. Sometimes we just aimlessly wonder about, and the Lord's like, what are you doing? I've told you where to go, and I've told you exactly what to do. Now, when we talked about this the first time, this is one of those words where sometimes it's by error. I just found myself going the wrong way. Other times, oh, I know exactly which way to go, but I don't care. I'm going my way. And which is the moral one that I gave you in Isaiah 53, where it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. And this is that word, taha. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to what? Zone way. And see, that one's more high-handed. That one didn't come about by error. Made a mistake, Lord, sorry, I had no idea that this was one of your commands. Isaiah 53, I clearly understood which way you wanted me to go in regard to your command, but I chose to go my own way, okay? Now, I put another note in there. I don't think I put this the first time. Going astray can refer to an error. Accidentally, that's what we're talking about. But here's the important part. Openness to disclosure to an error is very important but to dismiss the warning or excuse yourself is to incur wrath. In other words, God had a sacrifice for you going the wrong way, okay? If it was by error or if it was like, I did it and it was wrong, the sacrifice depended upon whether or not you were open to the call to repentance. If you weren't open to hear God call, to turn around and go his way, there wasn't a sacrifice. There was judgment. It was wrath, okay? It was death upon those. So, and we're, we're right back there in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, New Testament, this hasn't changed. There's still the call to repentance. And there has to be this willingness of heart to hear from the Word of God and humbly respond in repentance and faith and obedience. That's always the case. You're going to go the wrong way. You're going to find yourself out left field. I remember sitting down with a young couple who wanted to get married and counseling with them, and the boy literally had no idea that premarital sex was a sin against God. He was like, what? He'd never been in church, had no idea about the Bible. He had come to faith, didn't have a clue about anything. He wanted to do it right. We began to talk about it. I hadn't, he's like, I had no idea that was wrong. I love her. I just assumed that it would be okay. And I was like, no, it's, it's against the command of God. And I said, if you want to be faithful, you'll stop this until you get married and we'll walk through this thing. And he said, he willingly did that. He walked away from that. He heard the call of God to repent. He stopped, he turned away. God's perfectly willing to offer a sacrifice for that, right? There's a sacrifice for that. 
But this idea of excusing, well, it may be wrong, but it's okay with me. You know, there's no real sacrifice for that. Okay, there's just condemnation and wrath for those sort of things. So anyway, some of these are very serious. Uh, sewer is to deviate. Again, this is the willingness. This, this one is not by error. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, the blessing, God says, I will give you if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I'm commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known, that will incur the curse. Here's a couple more on the back. Jeremiah 17, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Psalms 14, the Lord has looked down upon heaven, upon the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. All right. So Paul quotes Psalms 14 in Romans 3, right? So in regard to this word, what do we know about our personal lives, about deviating from God's commands? Who's done that? Everyone. Every single person. Unwillingly or, or unknowingly or knowingly? Knowingly. That's why God, that's why Romans 3 winds up with the judgment of God because we're all under the wrath of God, right? Because we've all deviated from God's design, willingly and knowingly. We've all turned aside. So there's an Old Testament word that's going to roll into the New Testament word to understand what God requires and to just turn your back on it and walk away. Or how they did so many times in the Old Testament regarding the children of God. Jeremiah 17 is an example of this. God would tell the people to trust me, and instead of trusting God, they would put their trust or their confidence in a man, in strength or in horses or in some way to deliver themselves rather than waiting on the deliverance of God. Right? And God is like, you're just turning your back on me is all that you're doing. Now you think about this in respect. Let me flip this one on the side. Turning away. You think of this from a, a mother or a father perspective. Your young child comes to you. The whole world's falling apart. And they say, you can't help me. My best friend's mom, she's going to help me. You'd be like, what in the world? You're like, dad, I just can't depend upon you. So I'm going to trust my friend's dad to take care of me. You'd be like, child, what are you talking about? You'd be absolutely heartbroken for your own kids not to run to you with a problem, but to rather to run to somebody else. And God's like, you do this to me all the time. You face some difficulty in life. Instead of running to me or turning to me in prayer, you turn to everybody and everybody else and try to find some way to rectify the situation on your own. Or try to find some way to save yourself rather than simply coming to me and trusting in me. It's a very hard lesson. Next word, I'm just moving through these quickly. You'll, you'll, have, you'll have this to take and contemplate yourself if you want to. Uh, we've talked about this word before, willingly stepping over a boundary. This is where God draws a line in the sand and we just step over that line. Genesis 12, 6, the non-moral Abraham passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem. So sometimes it's translated just simply passing from land to land. But anytime you do that, you're crossing boundary lines. 
Deuteronomy 17, 2 says, If there is found in your midst in any of your town which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant, stepping over the boundary line, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you've heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And behold, if it is true, the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, this man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. You see how high-handed this was and how God responded. Now, many of the contexts when we're talking about transgressing or crossing the line, God drew a line in regard to the worship of other gods. Of course, you know, if you read the Old Testament, they're constantly crossing that line and doing what other nations do, and they're worshiping false gods. And God's like, don't, I'm not going to tolerate that. If it is found out, they are to be brought to the gate. person that witnessed is the first one to cast a stone. After that, everyone is to join in because they've transgressed the commandment of God. We do that too. You have to understand, all these are in reference to us as well. Look at Hosea 6. This is how the Lord saw Adam's transgression. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant and they have dealt treacherously against me. So what did Adam do that God considers this serious transgression? Think back to Genesis 3. What did he do? That was not the worship of a false god. Simple. Cody, what did he do? Didn't trust him. Simple command, right? Don't. Very simple. Do eat from any tree in the garden. Don't eat from the one tree that's in the middle of the garden. And the day you eat of it, you will what? Die. We're back to that. And so those commands of God come to us in a very similar way. That's why if you're not trusting in Christ... You're trusting in your own ability to justify yourselves before God and you've transgressed all His commands. You've invited death, eternal death upon yourself. It's foolishness to think we could ever stand before God and justify ourselves on any single count because on all counts we have transgressed or stepped over God's boundary line, right? All right, the next one, spiritual rebellion. Job 31, again, Adam is compared with the same word. I have covered my transgression. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Uh, David talks about his sin of adultery using this word. Uh, let me read all these. All this is David. Psalms 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalms 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. 
This is rebellion, which is exactly what David did when he committed adultery. God saw that as rebellion against what he knew to be a sin, right? Or what David knew to be right, the right thing to do, and David simply just rebelled against that. Now, we certainly get a tremendous context for this understanding of sin because we've got children, right? And it's, this just happens every day. It's just constant rebellion against the parents, right? And we're supposed to weed that out of their heart, out of, out of their heart by the belt on the backside, right? But that's what you're helping them with because if they don't stop or if they don't learn not to rebel against you, how in the world are they going to learn they can't rebel against God? And see, that's why we're supposed to teach our children. We're supposed to train them to help them understand. You can't rebel. Rebellion is not a way of life, right? Hopefully they'll grow up and understand that in respect to God. We cannot walk in rebellion. Isaiah 53 is the gospel. He was pierced through for our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Again, this one forgiven. Rebellion against the Lord. All right, the next two are very similar. They're almost always used in the same context. And this is the one that speaks about unfaithfulness. Uh, there's two words there. One is uh, the noun form. The other one is the verb form. That's why I put them one right after the other. One we're going to turn to. Uh, but let me talk about this first one. Look at Numbers 5. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him. Okay? So that's the context. That's in our arena. When a wife is unfaithful to her husband. And we understand how horrible that is, right? Second Chronicles 36. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful. Not just unfaithful, but he puts a modifier on there. Very unfaithful following all the abominations of the other nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had set apart in Jerusalem. Ezra 9, 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I said appalled, Ezra says. Daniel 9, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. So the same word that we would use for marital unfaithfulness, and it's used in a number of times in that regard, God uses that same word to speak to us because of our disobedience to his commands. Plain adultery. Now, it's interesting. What's the Old Testament book that's all about this from beginning to end? Remember, Nathan? Hosea. Hosea. It's interesting. The entire book is about marital unfaithfulness to God, but they never once use this word. But the entire book paints the picture of marital unfaithfulness. Now, if you can be flippant about sin and disregard sin, you care very little about the Lord when he considers our relationship to be a covenantal relationship that, you know, Paul uses the illustration in Ephesians 5 to describe our relationship with Jesus is the same as the relationship between the husband and the wife. 
to a much greater degree, but that's the, that's the illustration that we have, right? And then understand from Scripture that sin and rebellion is adultery. It should cause repentance to well up in your heart. And it should cause us to be a lot less careless and a lot more careful with our words and our actions and our thoughts. We're called to be a holy people. If your expectation of your spouse is faithfulness, why can't God require that of us? And why are we so careless with it? I mean, we give our spouses zero room, and we shouldn't give them any room to flirt, to carry on with other people, to not come home. That's not okay. None of that's okay. But yet, when it comes to our relationship with God, we're so careless in our relationship with the Lord. Not to participate in worship, to be lazy for whatever reason, to participate in conversations at work that have nothing to do with God and are honoring Him. They're just ungodly, right? And yet we engage in all that stuff. We're just not supposed to be like that. Thankfully, when Christ returns, we will not be like that anymore. We will be the perfect, faithful bride. But my goodness, for the time being, could we not at least pursue that with repentance and a faithfulness of heart? You know, that's the picture. Now, the next word is the verb form. So turn with me to Malachi. Uh, go to Matthew, back up slowly to the left. Malachi chapter 2. All right, so this is the act of adultery. And, well, actually in Malachi, it's the act of divorce. They're just divorcing their spouse because they don't want to, they don't like them anymore. They're just done with them. And so Malachi 2, 14 through 16 gives us this picture of this word that we're about to bring into our context in regard to sin. Um, verse 14, Malachi 2, 14. Yet you say, for what reason? What reason have we... Are we receiving the judgment of God? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have, here's our word, dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You made a covenant with her. But not one has done so who is a remnant of the Spirit. There are a few who have not dealt treacherously with the Lord. They have a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. So he brings it from divorce into the context of sin. He who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Back to the word. So they were simply tired of their spouse for whatever reason. They would write a writ of divorce and they would just simply leave them behind. And God was like, what are you doing? You made a covenant. You just can't write up a writ of divorce and walk away. And then he turns that right around and he says, but you know what? You do the same thing against me. And this is what you need to repent from. So look back at your worksheet. Look at Hosea 5. It says they have dealt treacherously. Either you can translate that committed adultery or they've handed the Lord divorce papers. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them in their land. Uh, verse 7, 
But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant and they have dealt treacherously against me. So Adam's always the example. He gets almost every word. But what Adam did, the Lord considered as divorce papers. Can you imagine that? I mean, we think it was just a simple decision. Don't eat. I'm going to eat. God is like, you might as well have handed me divorce papers. You might as well committed adultery out in the open sun for me to see. That's how I saw that rebellion. Now you understand hopefully a little better why Christ had to die. Because our rebellion was open adultery and divorce papers to God and somebody had to die for that. That's what that sin deserved. And so Christ died in our place. All right, a couple more then I'll ask y'all for questions. I'm, let's finish this out and we'll stop. Deceitful is another one of these words. Uh, it's the natural tendency. Unfortunately, this is one that is, um, well, it's always linked to everybody like most of them are, but this one is just such a part of our lives. It's depicted as just being a natural thing that we do every day. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That literally says your heart is nothing but a little liar. That's what it literally means. Your heart is nothing but a little liar. You hide things, you shade things, you tell half-truths, you avoid the conversations. Your heart's just a little bit liar in regard to God. Jacob's name is a part of this root word, Genesis 27. Then he says, is, it, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has deceived me or supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Behold, now he's taken away my blessing. 2 Kings 10, Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all the worshipers, all the priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it deceitfully, cunning, so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. Was that okay, Cody? Second Kings 10. Was it okay? Jehu killed all the priests of all the false gods in one fell swoop, but he did it through deception. If God told him to, it's okay. <laughs> what do y'all think? No, right. I think God used it. Yeah, he did. You know, just like Jacob, right? Jacob's name was you little liar. And he lied to his brother all the time, and God used it in spite of him. So this, this is where we get grace in spite of. What, Tyler? At the same time, God used the most wicked people that he could find to judge his own people. I know, I know. There's nothing, you know, nothing good about them. Right. It would have been nicer if Right, right, yeah. So yeah, Jacob and Jehu, Jacob and Jehu both accomplished the purposes of God, but they did it through lying. So it's certainly not an example to follow, but that's the heart. That's the heart that we have. We just have little deceiving hearts. All right, three more words. Uh, the next word is usually translated violence. 
Um, most of the time in Scripture, it's violating someone else's rights. Uh, several examples, I just listed a few for you. Genesis 6, then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. So you get the picture, we're all in this boat. It's the epidemic of doing wrong. Psalms 140, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to trip up my feet. So this is what we would say. If This is a word you'd use if you have a hateful neighbor who does something to hurt you. Whatever it is. This is the word that we would use. You got a neighbor that's just mistreated you and did something against you. Stole something, broke something, whatever. God says, yeah, you're kind of like a bad neighbor. Okay. Amos 3.10, but they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation... All right, the last two words are very graphic. So <clears throat> this one's got three different pronunciations. It looks like raw, so just go with raw. could also pronounce ru or ruah, but it simply means to be bad. Now, if you ever share the gospel with somebody and their response is, I'm not a bad person, this is the word that they would be using if they were speaking in Hebrew because it literally means a wicked person. You're just evil. Okay? And we'd use this word quite a bit too, except we'd never use it against ourselves, right? Because we're not bad people. It's interesting though, God does. And this word is also translated in non-moral context as ugly. You're just ugly, man. Talking about ugly cows. All right, let's look at these. Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only raw continually or evil. Genesis 8, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. What's significant about Genesis 6 and Genesis 8? Genesis 6 is when, Nathan? Genesis 8 is when? What's the difference in the heart? Nicole. That's exactly right. There was no difference in the heart. So in other words, when God killed every living thing, and the only one that was left was Noah and his family, God says of Noah and his family, every intent of his heart is only evil all the time. He's got an evil heart. Genesis 41, there it is translated ugly. Numbers 32, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Psalms 51, David's prayer in regard to Bathsheba. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, what David did, David was like, dude, this was bad. It was really bad what I did. It was evil. Malachi 1, 
God says, when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is that not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord? So in regard to the worship and the sacrifices that they were bringing to God, God is like, you're just evil. You don't even bring a suitable sacrifice. You're just bad from the heart. All right, last one. Twisted, this is where we get our word perverted. It's just perverse. This is, this is a word we would use to describe abortion. Non-moral, Psalms 38, I am bent over physically, David says. So this word means bent or twisted. So you've got Jeremiah 3.21, a voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping, the supplications of the sons of Israel because they have perverted their way and they have forgotten the Lord their God. They've twisted it up. They're twisted of heart and twisted of mind. All right, questions or comments about any of these? Because that is pretty thorough examination of Old Testament terminology that God uses to describe us in our sinful nature. There's a lot of words. Yep. So it's just, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, you know, we're to the part where I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Absolutely not. I mean, that's like the best news ever. And if we didn't even have the the if we didn't even have the New Testament, if we rolled right out of the Old Testament and we applied ourselves to understanding this terminology. How filled with joy would we be to know what God has done on our behalf when there is no way we have deserved him ever lifting a finger in our direction, right? Because every bit of this was a, you have to realize is done against God. Every bit of this, which is what makes it so bad to begin with, right? Anyway, anyone else?